You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. How are you? Thank you so much. COVID is no joke. All right. Um, If you have a Bible, turn me to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, as you saw on the bumper, we're going to be back in the Sermon on the Mount Uh, Before we turn our attention there, I want to begin by uh, taking a moment just to pray, and specifically to pray for uh, this country, really, to pray for uh, the church in this country. Now, here's what I know. I know that um, there is enough brokenness, uh, and there's enough injustice, and there's enough sadness that happens in any given week for us to begin each sermon by kind of praying in response to what happened. We could, we could spend every single Sunday praying for, you know, whatever dominated the headlines, and we don't. Um, but this, uh, this week felt especially, in a lot of ways, alarming, especially sad. And then I think that because of just the, the mixture of Christianity into everything, it, it has especially a risk of misrepresenting who we are to the world. And so because of all that, I want to ask you to, to join me uh, in praying. I'll say a short prayer, then we'll turn our attention to Matthew 5. Lord Jesus, our King, our Savior, Psalm 2 says the nations rage and people plot in vain. And there has been much of that on full display, not just this week, but certainly this week. And so God, we pray and just confess that this country needs you. And in that, this country needs the church to look like you. Your church, your people are to be a distinct presence of love and truth and grace. And in this season of unrest, there are so many who claim Christ who have not lived up to that calling. The name and cause of Christ has been misrepresented by many on many sides, not least of which was your name, Jesus, on a flag surrounded by violence and hatred in this nation's capital this week. And that's not your heart. And that's not your way. We belong as your people to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that kingdom is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And where you are present, Lord God, those things are evident in the lives of your people. Would you make it true about the church? I thank you for all the ways it is true about this church. We love you. Would you be with the hurting? Would you bring peace? Amen. Matthew chapter 5, 13, 14, 15, and 16, where we're going this morning and really where we're going this month is not unrelated to what I just prayed, uh, but it wasn't planned that way. This is where we were headed and had been headed for a long time. And, and if you've been here for some, with us for a bit, you'll, you'll know that there are two things that are going to come together for us in January. There's two things that are going to be mixed together. Uh, one is that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We ended last November by uh, concluding the Beatitudes, and then we stepped out of the sermon for Advent, and now we're stepping back in into a really familiar territory of the sermon. You're salt of the earth, you're light of the world. If you have any sort of history in church at all, you're familiar at least with those two metaphors together to describe the people of God, that they are salt and light. And so we're going we're gonna to turn our attention to what's next in the sermon, that is you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. But then also, if you've been here for more than a year, what you know is that every January, 
we um, set aside the month of January to consider things that are near to the heart of God's people, to consider things that we care deeply about uh, as a church and, and things that we believe that all Christians really should care deeply about. And so you know that, that what that looks like every January is, is just considering some things, uh, some areas of darkness around us, some opportunities to share the gospel. And so we'll do that again this month, and we'll do that from the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So next week, we'll talk about the image of God. We'll talk about how Christians respond when that image uh, is threatened. And so we'll consider uh, from womb to tomb, what does it look like to be the people that believe that every single person uh, has dignity and value because they're made in the image of God. Two weeks from now, we'll look at the racial harmony. Again, we've done that for five or six years now. That conversation in the last year has become two things, much more difficult to have, but also much more important than ever to have. And so we'll trust God together and navigate that because we believe that in Jesus, the hostility that exists between all classes and colors and people and races has been removed. The last Sunday in January, I'm excited about this, we'll introduce uh, a new conversation kind of into the January lineup, and that's a conversation on faith and work, because here's what's true. Uh, I'm a pastor. Most of you are not. Uh, most of you are accountants, or you are stay-at-home parents, or you're teachers, or healthcare workers, or entrepreneurs, or you work in finance. And so what does it mean to be a Christian in your vocation? We'll spend a whole Sunday talking about that, and then we'll actually dip into February a bit, and one of our elders, Kevin Evans, is going to talk about God's heart for the gospel to go to the nation. So that's our month. We're going to consider all of that from the starting place of Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So this morning, what we'll do is I want to do a slow walk through those four verses because those will be the foundation from which we work and talk the rest of the month. And I want to begin by just acknowledging how this might feel for some, uh, that there may be a shift that's needed because of where we find ourselves culturally. Um, most sporting events, if you're a sports fan, if you've paid attention to this at all, most sporting events are still not letting fans attend their, their games. And so, like, obviously because of COVID, the NFL playoffs started yesterday, which it's really hard to care about that because God's team isn't playing in it, but that's fine. Uh, and I watched last night a little bit of the Washington-Tampa Bay game, and the stadium was empty. There were no fans in the stadium at all. Uh, when you watch most games, there are no fans because no fans have been invited to the game. There are no fans who are allowed to be at the game. And so what that means is that the people that you see there are there because they've been invited somehow to contribute. They are participants. They are players or trainers or coaches or media. They're there and they have a job to do, and they're there only because they have a job to do. And, and what you see is that everyone that's there is somehow contributing. No one is there simply to watch. Everyone that's there is there to work in some way, which is strange because what we're used to, pre-COVID, what we're used to seeing is we're used to seeing stadiums full of people, arenas full of people. We're used to seeing tons of spectators. This passage, follow me, has a chance to feel like that for some of us. In fact, all of this month has a chance to feel like that because when it comes to Christianity, many have gotten used to there being people who are just watching, not participating. 
We live in a culture where it's normal to think of Christians in different categories based on how committed they are to their faith. Like there's some who are super committed and really involved and others are kind of committed, but it's not like their main thing in life. And then there are others who are even more removed than that and have like a casual relationship with Christianity. Lots of people maybe we've gotten used to are content to watch while others do the work of God. But the picture that we get here, the picture that Jesus is gonna offer through his words is that his followers, it is a picture where everyone is working. There are no fans that are invited. There are no spectators that are invited. No one is simply watching. He invites participants. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. So as we listen to the words of Jesus, if we're looking for the people who simply watch, if we're looking for the people who simply receive and don't give, if we're looking for the people who simply are served but don't serve, if we're looking for the spectators, we will not find them. They aren't there. God has invited you, Christian. He has invited you to join him in his work. You see, I think when a lot of people think about God, uh, they see God as like a watchmaker. Uh, If they believe he exists, they believe he built the world the way that a watchmaker maybe builds a watch. And that is, they fashion it to run, they build the battery, and then they put it in, and they kind of set it going, and then just watch it tick and, 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 and steps aside. And now all that God is doing is he watches the watch, and he doesn't interact at all. And that's not how God describes himself in his word at all. God will use very different images of himself. He's not a watchmaker. He's a gardener who's actively pruning his vineyard. He's not a watchmaker. He's an artist who is sculpting his world, who is the one who's molding the clay. God is at work in the world. His hands are shaping the world to bring the world to its glorious future. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. That God who is at work in the world has chosen because it delights him. He has chosen to do his best work through humans. He's chosen to do his best work through us. From the very beginning, God has been at work in and with humanity, from Adam and Eve to Abraham and his family to Moses, and then all the way to Jesus, uh, God who takes on humanity to be human working through humanity. And so Jesus stands in that story, and now he gives that call to his disciples, starting with the people on the hill and then all the way to us. Salt of the earth, light of the world. You, when you become a Christian, <clears throat> when you become a Christian, you receive two things. More than two things, but certainly not less than these two things. And I think these two things are uh, foundational. Uh, you receive one, unconditional love from God. You receive God's love. Uh, and it's in Jesus, just as you are, takes you as messy and broken as you are and lavishes you with his unmerited grace and favor and love. And you also, second, receive God's purposes. You receive his mission, his plan. There there are no spectators. We all have a job to do, a calling to live out. And Jesus here in these verses is going to spell out what what that calling is. So to a room full of participants, he's going to define for us what that looks like. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. There is a verb that drives these four verses. You are. And then there are two metaphors that drive these four verses, salt and light. Let's start with the verb. You see two things. He says, you are. Two implications from this that are so incredibly important if we are to rightly understand who we are in the world. You are is plural in scope and it's present in tense. Plural in scope. It means that this is a community project, not an individual one that we as Christians have been invited to be a part of something together. What God has called us to do, who God has called us to be in the world, we cannot be alone. 
We live in a hyper-individualized world that will say to us that the strong ones are the ones who can uh, accomplish or pursue their life's purpose without needing anyone else. And there might be things that can be done alone. There might be a lot of things that can be done alone, but the mission and purpose of God is not one of them. To be a Christian is to belong to community. I've said this before. As I think about it, what becomes clear to me is that your relationship with God, my relationship with God, it's personal. It's deeply personal. Knows everything about you, uh, sees all of you, and loves you still. It's a deeply personal relationship, but it is not private, and it's not to be privatized, that we need one another. Uh, We live life together. Any serious attempt to join God's purposes for your life and for the world will mean belonging to a local community of believers like, like this one. So a good diagnostic question for us to ask, a good kind of spectator exposing question is, do my plans for my life, do my hopes for my life, do my dreams for my life, do they require other Christians to accomplish? Can what I most want in life be accomplished without the church of Jesus? And if the answer is yes, I need to consider that maybe my purposes for my life are different than God's purposes for my life. There's comfort in this, though, too. Not only can you not do it alone, which is kind of the confrontational part of it, but you never have to do this alone. It's comforting. Like, you don't have to live this life of following Jesus by yourself. I I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody, but doesn't it feel a bit like Christianity is maybe shrinking in front of us? Um, At least it feels more marginalized than it ever has in my lifetime. And that can feel isolating. That can feel lonely a bit. So let's do something. And I'm trusting you here, 9 a.m. service. Don't let me down. You've been my favorite service for at least a month now. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in just a moment. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, if you believe that Jesus is the true Lord of heaven and earth who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sin, rose in victory over sin and death, ascended to heaven, will one day return to make everything right and right now offers unconditional love and grace and mercy and favor to those who follow him. If you believe that, would you raise your hand? Amen. Look around, that's encouraging. It's, Adam, that's encouraging. I had my doubts, brother. I'm glad to see your hands raised. Okay, you can put your hand down. Think about that. Like Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against those whose hands are lifted. Like, which means that he will always have disciples ready to be salt and light. Which means as long as you believe this, there will be a room of people raising their hands with you. You never have to walk out in this alone. Like you will never have to be salt and light on your own. What makes us a unique people is, is a, that we are a community and we're a community that is not first and foremost known by what we oppose. We're not even first and foremost known by what we affirm. We are first and foremost known by who we belong to. And we belong to that God, and in belonging to him, we also belong to his people. So at the very least, the plural you are means that we can take comfort that we are not the only ones with a raised hand trying to navigate a complicated world. You don't, you can't do this alone. And praise God, you don't have to do this alone. You are, right now, it's present tense, plural in scope, present in tense. Remember with me who first heard these words. This is crazy. Peasants, blue-collar people, some religious elites, but most of them were just there to criticize and be cynical. But most of the people who were with Jesus were on the margins of society. They were a crowd who were used to hearing other people are used by God, but not you. You don't have what it takes to be used by God. 
Maybe they expected best case scenario they'd get to watch while others work. Jesus says, you, not someone else who knows more, not someone else who behaves better, but you. And think about this, the the people who were around him at the time had only been with Jesus for a few months. And so at the most, you would expect Jesus to say something like, some of you will be salt and light. That's not what he says. He says, you are. Don't, don't miss the grace here. The invitation around us in our world and the invitation, the, the, the pressure that we feel from our own hearts is often become what you should be. Become what you're not now, but become what you should be someday. And Jesus doesn't work like that. He does not say become what you should be. He says become what you are. He says uh, identity is not uh, earned. Identity is given. It's the difference, friends, between a reason for living because you have something to prove versus a reason for living because of approval you already have. It's the grace of the identity, the missional identity that Jesus speaks over his people. I think that many of us have two fears when it comes to being a part of God's work. Um, Whether that's sharing our faith, whether that's contending for God's justice in the face of injustice, or maybe it's just overall trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus. I think there's two fears that, that we have. One is I don't know enough. And the other is I'm not good enough. I don't know enough, so I don't know what to say, and I don't have answers that I should already have. I'm not good enough. Only the super holy Christians who don't struggle like I do are the ones who get to be used by God. And the biggest comfort to those fears is that God does not share them with you. God does not have that fear about you. He disagrees because how identity works in Christianity is you get the diploma and then you go to school. Uh, You get the trophy and then you play the season. You get the title and then you learn the role. And that means there is space for what you don't know. That's part of it. It means there's space for the ways that you need to grow. In fact, it's a wrong category. It's the wrong language. God does not deal in who is enough and who is not enough. God deals in who is self-reliant and who is dependent who trusts him, who leans into his strength and his mercy so that his strength is made perfect in those weaknesses. It's not about uh, what if you have is, is too little or is it just enough. It's about whether what you have is in his hands. What little you do know, what character you do have, is it surrendered to him like the disciples who came to Jesus and they gathered fish and loaves and they knew it wasn't enough to feed the multitudes of people, but they gave not enough to Jesus because in the hands of Jesus, not enough suddenly becomes abundance in his hands. So we are already starting with such confidence. You don't have to do this alone. And then the invitation is not to be something that you don't have the power to be, but to become who you already are, become who God has already declared you to be, to offer what little we have and to know that that will be used by God. For what? Okay, to be salt of the earth and to be light of the world. Let's look at these metaphors. Together, they both have to do with the Christian Uh, the church's impact on the world. So we're not to retreat from the world to be present in the world, but they carry different emphasis. And so uh, light of the world has to do with the kingdom message that we proclaim in the world. Salt of the earth has to do with how kingdom character preserves and protects the world. Let's do light of the world first. We talk about it all the time. The hope of the world is Christ and his kingdom. Amen? The hope of the world is Christ and his kingdom. The world is because of sin and rebellion covered in darkness. In the book of Colossians, it says we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light. This should sound very familiar. We talk about this all the time. The story of the world is the story of two kingdoms. 
Jesus is bringing hope and healing to the world through his kingdom of light, which one day will extinguish the darkness and all that's left is light. The story ends and Revelation says the glory, there will be no need for the sun because the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. God in his glory will illuminate a renewed heaven and earth. So those who have been rescued by Jesus, you and me, follow him. What that means is we are right now little pockets of light in the darkness, declaring to the world that in Jesus, the light has won and the darkness won't last forever. So the thing that you raised your hand and agreed to, most of us raised our hands five minutes ago and said was true, that Jesus is the savior of the world, the true Lord of heaven and earth who died for sin, rose in victory, ascended to heaven, is one day coming back to make everything right, right now offers unconditional love, grace, mercy, and favor to any who follow him. When we share that with others, when we live out of that gospel message, when our lives are radically different and radically missional because we believe that to be true, the light does its work through us. It's why we set aside this month to talk about what we talk about. It's, it's why one of the things that I will always contend for in a religious culture is that we are to be participants and not simply spectators because that's the pull of the culture. Uh, it's why we have our hand right now in gospel work around the world. We have either sent missionaries or we support gospel work all around the world. We, Citizens Church, you, uh, right now, we have a hand in gospel work in England, Spain, Brazil, India, China, Russia, Tokyo, Dubai, Lebanon, Jordan, Rwanda, Kenya, Zambia, Mexico, and Guatemala. Light of the world, all around the world. And that's just outside of the U.S. In you, as someone who's participating with God in the work that he's called us to, in you, we have little lights all over Collin County, in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your schools, in the hospitals that you work in, in the offices, or at least the Zoom meetings you do from home, right? The, the children that you're raising, everywhere there is someone who's been rescued by Jesus, who believes that the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness. We'll come back to that metaphor all month long as we consider what responsibility we have to the darkness around us, right? Whether that's the darkness of unbelief or oppression or abortion or racism or slavery, one day when the kingdom comes in fullness, those things don't exist anymore. What does it look like for us to take a shining shot at them now? You are the light of the world. Okay, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, I wanna spend the rest of our time with this metaphor because I think it's timely and I have been personally challenged in what Jesus meant by this. Actually, I've been deeply convicted. And if I can be honest with you, I just don't want to be alone in that. So I'm going to try to recruit you into that conviction with me. You're welcome. If light is about kingdom hope, salt is about kingdom character. Salt is about the people that we're becoming in the world and what influence that has on the world. In the first century, salt was not for taste as much as it was for preserving food. Uh, it, salt kept food from spoiling or at least slowed down the decay process in food. So in my house, we have a fridge in the kitchen uh, and in the garage. I don't mean to brag. Um, but that's how we keep food from spoiling, by, having, by putting our food in the fridge. We have salt, but the salt at our house is just for taste. In the first century, salt was the fridge. Uh, sodium chloride is what salt is, and pure sodium chloride has a preservative effect on food. And so in the first century, they got it from the Dead Sea because that's all that the Dead Sea is, and they use it on their food because it keeps food from rotting for a time. And so everyone listening to Jesus knew that that was salt's purpose in the first century. That's how they used it in their homes. And so when he says, you're the salt of the earth, they would have understood Jesus as saying this about them. You have a preserving effect on the world. You are the salt of the earth. 
where there is a Christian in the world, where there is a church in the world, their very presence is to ensure that the world is not as bad as it would be if they weren't there. You're the salt of the earth. Christian, you and I have the solemn and sacred responsibility of preserving the world from moral decay. Uh, We are not, uh, we are in the work with God and that means being present in the world in such a way that it does not rot completely. That's a sobering job. That's a job that has a high calling. Um, you are the salt of the earth. And what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we have the power to usher in an existence that's free of evil. That's not our job. That's Jesus' job. And that only comes when Jesus comes again. But it does mean that Christian presence preserves from an existence that's completely ruled and overcome by evil. That is true. How? How does that happen? Like, Jamin, it's, it's really rotten right now. We cannot get the answer to that question wrong. I hope you care about the answer to that question and then hear me. We cannot get it wrong. Here's what we want the answer to be, if we're honest. We want the answer to be about action. Like we want the answer to be salt to the earth, so be politically active, be socially active, know what's wrong out there and know what's wrong with the world around you and start there. We want it to be about us identifying what around us needs to change first, but that's not where it starts, according to Jesus. That's part of it, but it does not begin there. It begins where the sermon begins and where the sermon begins is blessed are the poor in spirit. It starts with the Beatitudes. It starts with kingdom character. It's what we spent two months walking through and talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. That's kingdom character. It's what is true about citizens of the kingdom. We preserve from moral decay. We are a stabilizing presence in the world by first having the character of the king and his kingdom, which means, friends, you are the salt of the earth. That does not start with you affecting change. It starts with you being changed. By Jesus, into a merciful person, into someone who forgives, into someone who mourns the thing that God mourns over, into someone who is hungry, who has an appetite for God, into one who loves God and loves others in fulfillment of who humans were always meant to be. Would you hear something? To be good for the world, we have to be different from the world. We have to grow in having the character of the kingdom and then out of that character as kingdom people distinct from the world, we serve our purpose. This is exactly then what Jesus' warning is about. What if the salt loses its taste? And if it loses its taste, it can't possibly fulfill its purpose. It's no good. There was a kind of powder, a white powder in the first century that started as salt But because there were no refineries in the first century, what was once pure sodium chloride got mixed with other substances. And when it mixed with things that were not salt, it could no longer preserve food. It lost its preservative effect. It lost its ability to protect from decay. So many people would use this white powder they thought was salt on their food only to watch their food spoil because what looked like salt did not taste like salt or act like salt because it had in it the very things that caused the decay it was meant to prevent. Here, friends... The warning of our Lord to be good for the world, we have to be different from the world and hold back the evil in the world as people who have the character of the kingdom, as people who have the character of the king. But where there exists in the church and in the life of the Christian the same decay that exists in the world, 
where there exists in the church and in the Christian the same anger and the same violence and the same pride and the same greed, the same worship of power, the same worship of comfort, the same fear of death and fear of man, the same slander, the same love of money, the same idolatry, the same apathy towards God, the same hatred towards others. It may have a church going, social media posting, biblical values, voting, appearance of salt, but none of its power. Because then there is too much of the very thing that caused the decay we were meant to prevent. To be good for the world, we have to be different from the world. There is a, pro- there is a problem with some of Western evangelical Christianity, and I'm not smart enough to figure it all out, but part of that problem is many people, many Christians, would rather fight culture than form character. Believe Christianity is about knowing what is wrong with the world and paying no attention to what's wrong with me. And if we could, I think many of us would actually settle for living in a Christian culture without ourselves possessing kingdom character. I will tolerate lack of mercy in my life. I will excuse too little hunger for God in my life. I will rant about who I think is ruining things and call that persecution. I will applaud those who will fight my enemies and call that peacemaking. Because if we're honest, what we really want is we want enough of God and the culture around us for us to feel safe in the world, but not enough of Christ within us to make a difference in the world. God help us. God help us. Citizens Church may it not be said of us, may it not be true about us, May we be those who long to be changed and then bring change. We are the salt of the earth invited to participate in the sacred work of restraining evil in the world as people who are different from the world. And so, yes, we want to talk about injustice that's around us. And yes, we want to talk about the rest of the month taking the gospel to those who need it. But we don't want to do that as action that's divorced from character. We want to be those people who are prophetically and beautifully speaking the truths of God out into a chaotic world as people who share the character of Christ as people who have the character of the kingdom. So as you ask the question, what does this world need? Part of that answer is that this world needs you to be godly. This world needs me to be godly, to have kingdom character. And and it is needed especially, especially when the world is growing more and more chaotic. In the middle of the third century, um, Christians in North Africa, so this is in the 250s A.D., Christians in North Africa were facing the following problems. Division in the church because of theological conflicts and cultural conflicts. Hostility from the Roman Empire, harassment from imperial authorities because of political unrest and uncertainty. And a pandemic that was known as the Cyprian Plague and that was spreading fast and killing thousands of people every day. Christians in the third century faced division in the church political problems in the empire, and a pandemic that's out of control. Do you know that world? Yes. Goodness, 2020, the worst year of my life, right? Many Christians were disheartened and losing hope in North Africa because the world seemed out of control. They had a pastor, a man named Cyprian, and he wrote to them to encourage them. He wrote to them what he called a treaty of encouragement. And here's what he said. Hear his words. He said, Beloved, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than boasting of them. We do not speak great things. We live them. 
He wrote to encourage, and the encouragement he offered was not, don't worry, things are getting better. The encouragement he offered is, remember who you are, and remember what you, and only you, and distinctly you as followers of Jesus, remember what you offer in the world. We are the people who have a wisdom that's just deeper than our outward appearance, our dress. We are a people who have character that we don't brag about, we actually practice. We are the people who are committed to great things that are not simply spoken, but they are lived. He reminds them of who they are, salt of the earth. And the great things that they have are the great things of the character of the kingdom that they offer. He doesn't say, don't worry, things will get better. He says, remember, you have a calling to live great things because without you, things would be worse. And so live the great things of kindness and peacemaking and mercy offering and generosity. These are things that you and only you can live. And it was, if you know anything about the history, it was that kind of witness that changed the Roman Empire. It was that kind of witness that offered this preserving for moral decay. It was that version of Christianity is what spread the one that did not simply speak of godliness, but lived godly lives. Friend, you are the salt of the earth. And if you're like me, there's much room to grow when it comes to kingdom character, when it comes to living a life of godliness, when it comes to fighting to be people who actually live the things that we speak. Remember what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us here not to be better, but to be who we are, to be who he has declared us to be, who he's making us to come to him in dependence, offering what we have, placing that in his hands, asking him to change us asking him to start with us that we might be different from the world so that we can do good in the world in the name of Jesus. God, would you make this true about us? Would you help us, Lord, be people who have your character, share in your likeness, not perfectly, but faithfully, God? One of my prayers, I pray, God, that if Citizens Church ended tomorrow, the world would miss us. I pray, God, that what we would offer together is that we would offer a distinct, Christ-exalting, peace-making, pure-in-heart picture of you, God, to the world around us. And we need you. We're desperate for you, need to continue to be changed by you, God. And so that's our prayer. Our prayer is that you would start with us. Our prayer, God, is that we would not be those who are uh, blind to the chaos that exists within us, that we see reflected around us, that we would not be those who ignore or excuse where we need you to do the change, where we need you to form our character. We want to be righteous and godly people, not for your approval, but because you already love us. Pray, God, that we would remember the grace that comes from being those who are already identified with you, Jesus. All of our sin covered, all of our rebellion forgiven, and now we get to be those who are invited to grow into what you've already declared us to be. Make it true. We love you. Jeremy, pray. Amen.